All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. Interestingly, some people that we thought would be sympathetic, partly because we semi-improvised the session, we we allowed there to be space for a, a real uh, exchange with the people mm. who were there. Uh, one person certainly said that we had been disrespectful. I mean, it was not our intention, to say the least. Uh, so, yeah, we were a bit taken aback by that. There was one attendee saying, you guys are going to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and then it, it was like, looking back on it, it's quite funny. There, there were, you would sort of look out and see four or five very well-known, very successful course book writers who were there to see what was going on. <laughs> This episode of Teacher Talking Time was created with support from Podbean. As you know, podcasts are a great way to get your message out or engage within a professional or creative community. We use Podbean to host our show, and it's super effective at doing everything you'd want. If you're a beginner or seasoned podcaster, Podbean's user-friendly interface can help you start, manage, distribute, and grow your show. If you're looking to start a podcast for either professional or personal reasons, Podbean is a powerful and inexpensive option. Learn Your English has a special link for our listeners who want to try out Podbean at no risk. Learn more about their features and get your first month free when you go to podbean.com L-Y-E. Thanks for listening to us and for subscribing to Teacher Talking Time. Now, let's get back to the show. This is Ayn Kudina. I'm from Singapore. I live in Costa Rica. And you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our November episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast by Learn Your English. Again, the main aim of our podcast is to deconstruct language teaching and bridge the gap between research and personal practice. Each episode of our podcast is dedicated to our vision of language education, which consists of continuous growth, which is accessible, affordable, and appropriate to your teaching context. I'm very excited today because I will be joined by someone who has been in the language industry for quite some time, and his name is often associated and synonymous with organic, holistic, bottom-up, and effective teaching. He is a teacher, author, teacher trainer in English language teaching for the past 30 years. Back in 2000, he, along with his partner in crime or co-conspirator Scott Thornbury, co-founded a language teaching movement, or should I say revolution, Dogme ELT, which led to the publication of their book, Teaching Unplugged, back in 2009, which, by the way, also won a British Council Elton Award for Innovation in 2010. Not satisfying with shaking the grammatical core of English language teaching, in 2011, along with another author, Lindsay Clanfield, he started an independent e-publishing collective called The Round, 
and a year later, they published they published their first book, Fifty Two: A Year of Subversive Activity for the ELT Classroom. That book was too very successful, and was also shortlisted for an Eelton Award in two thousand thirteen. Jumping to two thousand twenty, he has recently announced a new project, the Context, which offers lessons for students, sessions for teachers, and ideas for schools. The Context has recently partnered with International House Belfast to give a series of teacher training workshops in Russia. When he's not in the classroom, he plugs in the mic and is the lead guitar for the Sea Rockets, Rockets, I should say, whose music is described as Johnny Cash meets the birds on the set of A Hard Day's Night. So please, ladies and gentlemen, help me in welcoming the one and only Luke Mettings. Luke, thanks for coming. Leo, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is exciting. I, I want to talk a little bit about the Sea Rockets. Are you guys still um, playing? Is it still yeah, around? Well, we haven't played since, uh, since March. Okay. We had to cancel a few gigs, which is a shame. But yeah, we're definitely still playing. Uh, we, we love to play. Have you got a gig for us sometime after the pandemic? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, Luke, I want to jump right into this. Um, and I wanted to divide this interview into parts. So we're going to be looking at the micro, the meso, and the macro structure of, of teaching unplugged. So I thought maybe we could start with your teaching background. So I'm curious, and I think a lot of people are as well. Perhaps you could tell us a little more about how you got into teaching. Um, what were your early educational influences? What kind of teacher were you? How did you teach? Were, were there dogma moments in your teaching? How about PPP? Did you teach from, from a grammatical syllabus? Sure, I, I, I did. Um, I mean, I guess my, my deep background is that my mother was a teacher. And so education, as I think it is for a lot of other educators, was in the home. Mm. I've often wanted to do a bit of research into this or, or a proper piece of research and just to explore the, the influence on family and especially parental influence um, on people who go into education. So that was my first deep influence. And in fact, you know, I found out quite late in my mother's life that she had taught ELT in Paris in the 1950s, uh, which was, uh, yeah, it was a lovely discovery. And she, her kind of instincts were very progressive. Um, we did, towards the end of her life, have the, have the chance to talk about dogme and teaching unplugged, and they were always you know, very worthwhile conversations, and she was broadly very sympathetic. So that, if you like, is the deep background. I started, um, like a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of um, British ELT professionals with a four-week course at the International House. And certainly I taught PPP, which is how I'd been trained to teach, for a number of years. Uh, you know, I, I used course books and I planned lessons um, carefully. And when you ask what kind of teacher was I, it was an unhappy one, actually. And I, I wouldn't blame that on my training, um, or indeed on the coursework, some of which were, I realize in retrospect, um, the sort of um, vestiges of, of the kind of functional notional syllabus. Uh, books like, oh, well, books by authors like Leo Jones, I forget the names of the books. Um, oh yeah, there was there was an interesting mix of textbooks, and it was just in the late '80s when I started 
and it was just as Headway kind of took everything over. It was it was quite a pivotal moment, I think, that uh, Headway arrived, I think, in 1985 or six, um, and was very heavily signaled as kind of grammar centered. The grammar was printed in blue. That was one of the kind of editorial <laughs> masterstrokes, um, had its own pages. Uh, and it was a sort of restitution of grammar to the, the coursework syllabus back in the center. Uh, almost in the same year, possibly 85 or six, uh, Raymond Murphy's English Grammar in Use was also published, which was all about grammar and was, you know, long um, practice activities, hundreds of them, which was often paired with headway. So it was, it was kind of an interesting moment to come to teaching. And I think it was a moment at which teaching was starting to retrench English language teaching. I think I would have been more at home and felt happier in the 60s or 70s, probably. Um, so it was becoming quite sort of instrumental, rather pragmatic, very grammar focused. And for years, as I tried to fit my sort of spirit, if you like, um, and aims and sense of what was helping the learners to the PPP approach I've been trained in and the courseworks that I was using, uh, I, yeah, I felt constrained and I guess dubious also. It wasn't just about my, you know, spirit as a person or as a teacher. It was about how effective it was to be effectively forcing the learners around the wheel of the same syllabus again and again, very often the same content, even at different levels. And I taught in London. Um, I didn't travel to teach. And what was interesting about teaching in London was that it was almost like a, a kind of laboratory for the effects of English language teaching, because you had students coming from all over the world who'd been trained um, to, to a you know, greater or lesser extent, whether it was at primary or in those days, typically secondary school level. And you could, you could see and feel the impact of the way they'd been taught. And then very often we were reinforcing or repeating the same processes and the same, um, the same techniques. And yeah, I was very dubious about how helpful it was and whether indeed it was good value for what we were offering at, at, um, at a private language school. It was a really long answer, Leo. Good luck editing that. Oh, wow. It's, uh, I mean, there's a lot to, to deconstruct here. Um, I think first, uh, Leo Jones, I think, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but I think it was Functions of American English, or it's a blue cover, and I think it's a, it's a fantastic book. I think the um, word function was in the title. I mean, it was yeah, very... yeah. It was, like you said, it was a very functional, notional syllabus. And then, of course, the, the inception of Headway and Grammar News, which you actually eventually, at one talk that I watched, you call it Grammar Out of Use or Not in Use. Um, and it's interesting because you mentioned that you didn't travel to teach. And I think yeah. that, that, that, that is, that's an interesting point because I feel like the way a lot of these courses were designed, CELTA courses, whatever they were called, Colty back in the day, um, I, I think a lot of the people who were taking these courses, they were taking them with this, with the intent of eventually traveling the world, because that was the the perhaps one of the main appeals of of teaching English as a foreign language was to actually have the opportunity um, to travel. But there is one thing you said, which which really um, I think we should talk about this. 
is the fact that you were teaching in London and these students were coming to the UK to learn English. And most of most of them, and I think this is something that applies to Canada as well and to other countries, is that these students are being um, taught from the same textbooks that we're using abroad. So if they're looking for, for, a, for a, a new transformative experience, that is definitely not something that is going to be happening through, through language. It's going to be happening through the experiences they have outside um, the classroom. And one of the things that I wanted to say is you mentioned that you co-founded an experimental language school in London. Mm. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Perhaps you can tell us more about that. But one of the things that you said was that learners were coming with their English, not yeah. for English. So maybe that kind of like help us segue into dogmy, but perhaps you can tell us more about that. Yeah, I, I think it, I think again, it's, you know, it possibly gets easier as one gets older to see things in a historical context. Mm. Um, the, after teaching for the best part of 10 years, I did a couple of years at the English Language Gazette, which was actually quite a long stint for anyone in the editor's or, in my case, deputy, deputy editor's role. <laughs> uh, that was quite a long, uh, that was quite an achievement to last two years. And it was, it was a fascinating job. Um, and I got a much broader sense of the place of English language teaching uh, and learning in the world. Um, How so? previously mm. how so like you like how in what way well um teaching in london i think although the it was quite a lively environment in terms of teaching ideas mm -hmm. um it was it wasn't really open to the wider world i i hadn't found for myself and if it had been advertised to me i hadn't noticed the existence of teaching organizations. I didn't know about ITEFL. Um, I didn't know about JOLT in Japan. I didn't know about um, TESOL in the States. Um, and I was suddenly exposed as a, effectively a trade journalist to all sorts of organizations um, around the world. And it, it really opened my eyes in the way that other teachers' eyes might have been opened by travel. But I was also able to sort of get a sense of the, the geopolitics of English, if you like, and the way we were often covering new initiatives by, at national level by governments to start teaching English at primary school for the first time. Um, so all of this was growing in the last years of the 20th century. And as you've quoted me as saying and realizing the people who were coming were increasingly not the kind of absolute beginners for whom I think quite a lot of the basic methodology in the CELTA, for example, is designed around. Um, they were people with a lot of English. It, it might have been inaccurate and a bit muddled, mm. um, but they had lots of English to work with. And what I didn't want to do Welcoming them, welcoming them to a new school was sort of act as if they'd never been taught before, you know, act as if they hadn't probably had several trips around the present perfect. 
um, that something wasn't quite working with most of them. Because as anyone who's taught in a language school or you know, in many different places at once will have noticed, we can find ourselves teaching a, an elementary class or student in the morning um, and then find ourselves teaching exactly the same grammar point to an upper intermediate or an even advanced student later on. Hmm. So I, I, you know, I didn't want to replicate what they had at school and I wanted to really focus on yeah, the language that they brought with them. We had a, a, the first course we ever had was called Explore Your English. There were no levels. Uh, it was oh. literally come as you are. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great fun, you know, and if you if you engage people, as, as you know, if you engage students, if you listen to them and if you feed back things that you think can help them, then the minutiae of, of a level focused syllabus becomes less relevant. Hmm. So much to unpack here. Uh, Explore your English. That actually sounds like the title of a textbook to me. Um, <clears throat> it quite possibly is. <laughs> probably. So <clears throat> this experimental language school in London, were yeah. you running the school or like, was it like some sort of partnership? I'm, I'm curious because there's actually not a lot of details out there about no, uh, it was a partnership. I was asked to help start it up by okay. someone who had the business ideas and the finance um, and lots of ideas about how a school might be run better from a business point of view, more in the interests of the teachers. Mm. Um, and I had a lot of, we were both very idealistic and it was, you know, it, it was truly experimental. Um, I had lots of ideas about how a language school might better serve both the teachers and the learners. When I started, I think my, this is before I, I read anything that Scott had written. This is mm. the late 90s. And my initial instincts were very unplugged. I, I said there, were, there wouldn't be any course books, um, that each classroom would have, I think, a copy of possibly English grammar in use and English vocabulary in use that could be used as a resource as needed. Right, like a reference, um, okay. Possibly every student to have a copy of each. Um, I, I said there wouldn't be a photocopy because I didn't want people <laughs> photocopying the same lessons they'd used five years ago in Jakarta or Brussels or wherever. <laughs> um, one of the things that teachers certainly in those days held most dearly was that kind of suitcase of teaching materials um, which would be wheeled out and photocopied and I, I again was skeptical about their value um, partly from the sort of common sense research that one does as a teacher and, and finding that a, a lesson that goes down great with one class dies with another and part of the reason for that is that our own impetus our own engagement with the material falters and uh, diminishes as we repeat our exposure to it. Mm -hmm. I we think need, that's... We need, to be, we need to be challenged. We need to be sort of uh, on the edge of our senses as we teach and not just repeating something, which it might be in our own handwriting, but if it's been done 10 or 15 times before, yeah, I don't think it has that much value. Um, so I said, <laughs> yeah, no course books, uh, no photocopier, I didn't want there to be doors in the classrooms. 
That one didn't happen, although we did pursue the, the first two for some time. I wanted people to be able to walk in and out. I wanted teachers to be able to sit in on each other's lessons so that it wasn't such an isolated practice and so that observation wasn't a, a testing environment or a testing right. activity. Um, I didn't want it to be a staff room. Uh, that was quickly vetoed because I wanted students, as you were saying earlier, I wanted them to have as much exposure to something different, have exposure to, to the teachers when they were in London. Um, so yeah, there were lots of ideas and there were too many uh, creative ideas when it came to both the business side of things and the academic side of things. But I think for many of the teachers who were there, it was probably exciting and frustrating in equal measure. Uh. And that people definitely relish the idea that they could explore, you know, they could explore their teaching in the way that we wanted learners to explore their English. And it was, it was certainly there that I was ready uh, for, for Scott's ideas when I, I read, first read articles of his in 2000. Mm. Question, were there any levels? Because you said there was no photocopier, no doors. I mean, there was a staff room, but were there any levels or... Well, most, most of these things came in quite quickly, partly because when we were interviewing teachers, they asked about them. They wanted to know if there were, um, what coursebooks we used. They wanted to make sure there was a photocopier. They didn't like the idea of no staff room, which I accept was a possibly crazy idea. Um, and so, sorry, what was the, the last part of your question? I forget. If, if there were levels. Um... Oh, yeah. Um, there were, yeah, yeah, that, that changed fairly quickly. I mean, my, my feeling about levels hasn't changed that much since then. It's really that you know, levels are real, but they're very broad bands. Um, mm. And the sort of levels that we teach to in schools are often defined by levels within a course book. And those are defined by the marketing department of the publishers. So, yeah. They're too finely cut. I, I think, you know, there's such a broad climb within each person's use of English between, you know, fluency and difficulty mm -hmm. um, that to sort of put people within narrow level bands that is unhelpful, counterproductive. I was going to save this um, to the end mm -hmm. of, the, of the episode, but I think I might as, as well just ask you this question right now. Um, <laughs> What were some of the challenges that the teachers had, especially because what I'm thinking is, as a new teacher, if you if you are going for an interview at a school like that with yeah. no textbooks, no photocopiers, um, no doors, no staff room, what were some of the challenges that these teachers encountered in a in a in a situation in a school like that? Progressive, I would say, but. At the same time, I want you to think about and consider what were some of the, I mean, I, I can clearly see what the benefits are. I think as a teacher, you would develop a lot faster. And I think you would become more reactive and you would become more, less preemptive and more reactive in, in, the, way you t in the way you teach. But yeah, what, what, what were some of the challenges? I think I'm, well, I'm, I think one of the challenges was me because I was the um, director of studies and I hadn't, I didn't have a vocabulary for my ideas. I had ideas, mm. um, a lot of which were quite quickly set aside. So we did buy a photocopier. Um, we did introduce course books. And 
yeah, there were doors on the classrooms. Um, so I think one one challenge that people had was was me. I had big ideas, and I didn't quite have um, yeah a vocabulary for them. And that's one thing that I took very clearly and directly from the first articles of Scott's that I read was a sort of validation for for what I was trying to do, and also some some background to it. You know, the, the mm. sort of ideas that had been tried but before who was trying them. Um, and, and, you know, a whole movement in education, if you like. Well, which brings us to what you just mentioned, the idea of, of you coming across the, the article. Perhaps we could, we could talk a little bit more about the genesis of, of Dogma EOT, how you came across the discussion group. And I think I remember doing some research back in the day, and apparently there were people from all over the world participating actively in, in that. And also how... I'm curious about how you and, and Scott met and kind of started this entire Dogme ELT movement. Could you tell us more about that? Um, well, yeah, I, I remember reading as part of my learning process, I started to subscribe as a school to IATEFL issues, I think, and therefore to IATEFL. Um, which was something I'd learned along the way from being at the EL Gazette. I wanted there to be more engagement with the outside world. And in one of those magazines, I read a Dogma Free LT, which was his sort of manifesto article. And it, it rang true on so many levels that I emailed him the same day. I suspect the email address was there. There was internet in those days. It was a bit prehistoric, but you could find things out. Anyway, I, I emailed him, and we very quickly got chatting via email. Um, another teacher also contacted him that same day, and then the three of us were communicating via email, and um, someone, it wasn't me, suggested that we use Yahoo Groups, which has actually only just closed down, and That's it was true. a kind of proto-social media. Um, organized via email. It was just email threads that were organized for you, basically. But yeah, we started sort of semi-formalizing our interaction on the Yahoo group <laughs> and other people joined in. You know, Scott was already um, well-known and uh, talking and immediately kind of brought these ideas into his talks. And I think he kind of fed on the energy that um, the, the, the new dialogue gave him. And I met him for the first time the same summer of 2000. And I organized, because I had the venue uh, of the school as a kind of natural venue, I organized a little dogma conference in open space. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. A dogma conference. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was it was small, but it was it was meaningful and it was exciting. And I think we started talking about putting a book together quite quickly. Um, oh, wow. Scott invited me to do some training with him in Spain over the next year or two. But it took a long time to find a publisher. In fact, one publisher said, and you remember that Scott was, you know, highly successful and, and, you know, a kind of prized author for publishers. Um, 
So in theory, it might have seemed like an easy sell, uh, you know, a new, a new idea by Scott and, you know, featuring other authors as well, potentially. But the, I remember one of our co-authored pitches for a book was turned down because although the editorial department of a major publisher liked it, the marketing department didn't. They said the feedback was that it wasn't, it, it, uh, that the editorial direction wouldn't support the marketing strategy or something like that. Huh. And I just thought, I mean, okay, I was disappointed at the time, but I also thought, great, if, if they're that bothered by it, there must be something in this. That's right. Uh, yeah, it took a few years to, um, to, to get the right, to find the right home phrase, as they say in publishing. Right. Well, almost nine, ten years, right? Because the book was published in 2009. 2009, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was about three years in the writing, I think. It was Lindsay Clanfield who was one of the series editors at the, for Delta on their teacher development series, which right. was then um, nascent. It was the, the start of their teacher development series. Um, and he worked with Mike Burgle as an editor of the book. And he asked if I wanted to write it, and I said, yes, can we get Scott in on it as well? And that's how it became the book it was. <laughs> We're going to come back to the book, because I have more questions to ask. But there is one, okay. one quote that I remember when I went back into the um, defunct Yahoo group now. Yeah. There was a quote by, again, someone who also um, played a very important role in my development as a teacher. It's a, a quote by Earl Stevick. Mm. And I think that quote, correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps is one of the biggest contributors to the movement, which is that success depends less on materials, techniques, and linguistic analysis, and more on, more on what goes on inside and between the people in the room. I'm curious as to what your interpretation of the inside and between is because I have talked to different people and everyone has a different interpretation. That's very interesting. Um, I mean, first of all, it is a fabulous quote, and it was so thrilling for me to to be finding out about writers like Elsie for the first time. Uh, I hadn't been aware of him, and um, I think another interesting thing which I'd like to explore at some point, I don't quite know how to do it, is that I think by the inside, the people, he, he, there's a kind of spiritual dimension. I believe he was a Christian, mm. um, and there was a Christian sort of um, direction, I guess, to his thinking about education. And actually, there's quite a strong spiritual dimension to a lot of progressive education. Um, and I, and I, think it's, I think it's a really interesting paradox possibly for, for some progressive educators um, but it's definitely there and I think as the world of big data has more and more influence on how activity in school is uh, sort of measured and defined I think, I think we need a spiritual dimension to our sense of what happens when people are together trying to achieve something. Um, I don't think it has to be faith-based, but I think it would be foolish to 
imagine that it has nothing to do with it, you know, or to, or to dismiss that aspect of the work of, of some of the strongest progressive thinkers there have been. Mm. That literally occurred to me uh, a few days ago. I hadn't really thought that through until quite recently. But so I think there is a spiritual dimension. That's one of the things that makes that statement so powerful. Um, what can you help me here? What was Paulo Freire's sort of um, religious? That's a good question. I, I would... was, was there I think there was something overlaid. I think there was. Was it Christian Marxism or? I don't really know. I can actually check this out. So I'm looking at it here. Yeah, no, it doesn't say much here. He just grew up in a very poor family. And I think mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually this is an interesting point now, too, because I'm now I'm starting to think about that as well. But there is certainly I spiritual. I agree with you. This whole, um, I think, learning in a sense, there is a little bit of of a of, of a spiritual um, aspect to it. Um, but growing up in Brazil, during the Great Depression, dealing with poverty, dealing with hunger. I mean, a lot of these things definitely um, shaped the way he perceived education. Yeah. I mean, I'm a product. Oh, here I found it. He was a. Apparently, he moved and he was part of a Christian democratic democratic agrarian reform movement. So he he was somewhat religious. There is an element to it. Yes, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to make it stronger than it needs to be. But it, I I just think it's an interesting an interesting area to explore because, of course, his writing is so profoundly human and has a, has a spiritual dimension in its interest in in the lives of people you know mm. i think recently i'm not Luke, suggesting that faith is the only access point but right i think it's interesting yeah it's interesting because um on social media recently i think a couple of couple of months ago and i've actually seen um and read reviews of people who criticize the work of paulo freire and i think it's okay i, I don't think it's wrong for people to criticize the work of of paulo freire but i think you if you don't grow up in brazil if you don't under if you have never been stricken by poverty, hunger, which were things that severely affected his ability to learn. Mm. And again, these a lot of these experiences shaped his decision to devote his life to educating and improving the lives of the poor. I think it's very difficult for someone who who grew up in North America or in the UK to truly understand the voice and, and, and the kind of work that he was putting um, when he wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Developing as a teacher isn't easy. It's even more challenging doing it solo. If you are looking to join a passionate community of teachers who love to learn, then the Learn Your English teaching membership can help. The Learn Your English membership allows teachers to develop what they want when they want to through monthly challenges, webinars, reflection tasks, and application to your individual teaching context. The membership brings like-minded people together from all around the world. If you love improving and taking risks in education, then join their growing community of teaching professionals today. Find out how at learnyourenglish.net backslash memberships. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Thinkific. With education increasingly moving online and the market for self-study and self-paced learning expanding, Thinkific is a great place to launch that lesson or course you have. We host our own courses for teachers and students there. If you've taken one of our courses, you know how user-friendly the interface is 
and how it offers a range of video, audio, and text lessons, along with a way to engage with other students in the course. Not to mention, it's very easy to build. If you want to take a leap and put that course you have online, try Thinkific. Learn Your English has a special link for our listeners who want to try it without any commitment. Get started with a free month when you go to try.thinkific.com slash L-Y-E dash trial. That's try.thinkific.com slash L-Y-E dash trial. Thanks for listening to us and for subscribing to Teacher Talking Time. Now, let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, my name is Azat Bostash and I'm from Turkey. You are listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Hey, merhaba arkadaşlar. Ben Azat Bostaş, Türk'üm. Şu anda Teacher Talking Time grubunun hazırlamış olduğu İngilizce Öğreniyorum podcast'ini dinliyorsunuz. To, to go back, uh, it is an interesting area. It's possibly an unanticipated direction for this podcast. Um, but but your question was, was so interesting. Um, to go back to it from my own perspective, which is not strongly faith-based, I would say that when he talks about what happens inside and between the people in the room, all right, from my perspective, things happen as an English language teacher when you let people talk about what matters to them, when you bring them into the conversation, when you make it clear that their lives are are not just part of the lesson but are at the very heart of it um they share more uh they they bring more to the classroom and that has a an effect on the people around them you can affect that as as the as the teacher uh you can model certain behaviors and as they're picked up and people start to realize that they are welcome in the class as a whole person that they're not seen as uh an intermediate student but as someone who is i don't know training to be a doctor or whatever it might be um that they open up and so and and, and that is that that stuff happening inside and between people which is not mystical not necessarily spiritual but it's also probably indefinable unless you were simply to do a lot of qualitative research and find anecdotal evidence of the way people feel when they're being ta- taught a certain way versus another way. It's interesting because um, those were two of the principles that you've just touched on when you were explaining the, the inside and the between, which is the relevance and the idea of empowerment, which are two of the 10 key principles of, of dogma EOT. But before we go get in there, mm-hmm. um, in 2003, there was an ITAFL joint session that you and, and Scott did together when you both mm-hmm. introduced Dogme to, to the ELT world. And I remember watching this interview and you said that it provoked, and I quote here, greeted with excitement and contempt, or, or it was derision, I guess. I can't remember what the word was. But can you, can you tell us why? <laughs> if you remember. I guess it's not that far ago. I, I, I, I do remember. Um... There were, interestingly, some people that we thought would be sympathetic, partly because we semi-improvised the session. We we allowed there to be space for a, a real uh, exchange with the people mm. who were there. 
Uh, one person certainly said that we had been disrespectful, huh. which was, I mean, it was not our intention to say the least. Uh, so, yeah, we were a bit taken aback by that. There was one, I remember one attendee saying, you guys are going to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and then it, it was like looking back on it, it's quite funny that there, there were often in those days at the front of talks and I was very new to it at that point I, I, I'd been a teacher for many years but I, I hadn't done much teacher training still less talks at conferences and there was a, a kind of front row sometimes I remember one at International House and I remember also that that at uh, um, in Brighton where you would sort of look out and see four or five very well-known, very successful course book writers who were there to see what was going on, what it was all about. Um, some, um, and I think mainly they were, what, what was interesting actually is, is that many of those course book writers had come up in the 60s and 70s in a, in a, a time of greater freedom of expression, let's say, in course book writing and so that they were they were naturally quite sympathetic to the ideas once they once they were once they heard them you know when you say that they were disrespectful you guys were disrespectful like in in what way i'm trying to understand well, it, was just, it was just one comment but it might have mm. it might have been one of the things that led me if i did write that to say that um i think I don't know. I guess we had had the session in a style which reflected our thinking about the classroom and mm. about there being give and take. Uh, it, so it wasn't a straight presentation. Okay. Um, it wasn't tightly controlled. Um, it was more interactive and more dialogic. Right. And to someone perhaps expecting something more like a, you know, delivering a paper it looked as if it was ill-conceived and casual, which I would say it wasn't, because right, I know that right. we worked hard to think about the best way to present the ideas, and we cared about them deeply. And I think one of the quotes from, uh, from that talk and from, from the article, which you wrote, I think, shortly after, which is Dogma <laughs> is Still Able to Divide ELT, is that it's not that you guys oppose books you are completely against this idea of not having space for the learners for the teachers to naturally engage in in dialogue which brings us to to the writing of the book the name perhaps the name dogme which mm. seems to be a bit heavy and and and carrying some sort of negative connotations because as mm. we all know dogme is a, is a set firm set uh, of uh, firm beliefs right um mm. But the term disappeared when you and Scott decided to write the book, which you titled Teaching Unplugged. I'm curious, why did you guys change the name? Well, both of the names are Scott's. Um, dogma, Dogme, is actually, turns out to be the Danish for dogma with an A, so it does mean dogma. Um, and it was a film movement that, that sort of inspired his first uh, manifesto for ELT. Um, I came at it much more from this the ELT perspective, um, and the f I mean the films kept coming out, and 
I mean, if you were, this isn't, this isn't how it happened, but if, if you had been, um, if we had been trying to sort of lead a movement and we really weren't, um, then the dogma name and the kind of films that were coming out and the kind of controversies that Lars von Trier in particular was uh, getting embroiled in uh, were kind of very off message, I would say. <laughs> um, so I, I think Teaching Unplugged was a bit broader. I think it was a bit lighter, as you suggest, because it was never meant to be a dogma. Uh, it was meant to be ideas and a provocation, but not strict rules. And it, I think it felt, it felt lighter. It was what the publishers wanted. Of course, there was another problem which came with Unplugged. Um, when people heard dogma, they said, oh, you're telling us what to do, uh, which I suppose we were to an extent. We were suggesting how they might do things right. using provocative language. Um, but, but, you know, there was, as you've said, it wasn't about saying never use books. It was like, how do you use them? How do you make yeah. space? Absolutely critical for the learner. And then when it came to Unplugged, at the time, use of technology and education was uh, on the rise and new technologies were coming in. And they were saying, well, you know, this is just old fashioned. You're telling people not to use technology, which again was literally not the case. We never said that. We critique technology, I think, fairly. But, um, you know, the new technologies that emerged in the 2000s, which is basically mobile technology, mm -hmm. was in essence bottom up in the way it was used or that was the dream at the time, um, allowing people to um, capture and create their own content and upload and share. Right. You, you've mentioned, uh, Luke, that it took you guys approximately three years to kind of like start writing the book. So I'm very interested in, in, in mental models, and perhaps you could tell us more about the writing process of the book. Was it your idea, Scott's idea? How much contribution did you guys meet once a, once a week? I mean, I, I'm, more, I'm more interested in like how you guys took the ideas from the group into a published manifesto yeah. that eventually became a book. With the, the first idea we had for it was, was for a much more um, sort of, not exactly crowdsourced, but a kind of a more collegiate book which included lots of quotes from the the yahoo group actually from the threads mm -hmm. we had quite an elaborate um proposal that didn't quite make it it kept not quite making it um and so in the end teaching unplugged became a book that was focused on ideas for teachers and i knew as a, as a teacher that very often what i wanted when i was exposed to a new idea was not the theory but give me an activity let's try it out so i i I, I really knew that mindset and I, and I um, you know, sympathize with it. And so the idea of a book kind of driven by things you could think about in the staff room, take into class, made sense to us. We didn't meet that often because I was in London, Scott was in Barcelona. And, you know, the great thing about working with him throughout that period was that I, I struggled to remember a time we disagreed about something. Our, our thoughts were, you know, in very, both in broad and, and in quite specific alignment, I would say. So it would be very rare for one of us to bring an idea to the table and for the other to say they didn't like it. Um, the 
introduction to the book is Scott. Um, most of the activities are mine, although he contributed some of the best ones. Um, and the bits that I wrote that in a way I'm proudest of are the introductions to the different chapters where we broke it down for teachers in, I suppose, a non-theoretical way of just how, why these ideas are worth considering, um, how they might help the students and how they could go about trying. Interesting. Huh. So it was, it, was, it was kind of something that was the result of years of, of deep collaboration, but when it came to writing it, we, we were sort of, we knew where we were and we were able to go about writing our, our different sections and then share them and comment. And um, there was a whole section at the end, I, I have a copy with me, <laughs> um, which we kind of shared again. We did one each of section C, I think it is, teaching as a non-native speaker, teaching with a course book, teaching specialized English and so on. We, we did about half and half. We'll, we'll get there. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, that's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in, in mental models, especially how people approach um, writing, which brings us to perhaps we can actually yeah, just uh, dive. Can I say, can I say one more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, one, pardon me. One more thing about that, because mm. it might be helpful to anyone working on a, a book idea, is just how much I learned from the editorial process, because obviously Scott had already written many um, great books, and I was new to it. I'd done quite a lot of writing. I'd, I'd done a lot of journalism, but I'd never written a book before. And so having Lindsay and Mike Burgle as, you know, the touch point for what I was writing in terms of the activities and the chapter introductions was, was fantastic. You know, it's a, it's, a whole, it's a whole learning process in itself. It's a whole thing to learn how to write a book. And right. you need help. You need great guidance. And that's what I was fortunate enough to get. Beginner's mind. Starting, even though you were a writer, you didn't let your journalist ego get in in the way and affect the well, way you actually... I, yeah, I probably did to start with. And, and, and it, was, it was, you know, I think that's part of the, I don't know what it, that's part of the editorial process, I guess, is that in, to, to find... I don't know, if, if, if you think you can write a book, there's a bit of ego in there, in the same way that if you think you can go and give a talk at a conference, there's a bit of ego in there. It doesn't matter how nervous you get yeah. or whatever. If you're saying, I think I've got an idea here that's worth sharing, there's a little bit of ego there. And yeah, as you said, I have done lots of journalism. And, and I was used to writing with a, a kind of pretty free hand. Um, I've been writing a blog for The Guardian which was actually where Lindsay had, had sort of come across my writing, which was, you know, quite wild at times. And oh, yeah. I had to learn the discipline of writing something that somebody could read, absorb, take into the classroom. I remember actually reading back in, I don't know, 2010, reading the um, Dogma is Still Able to Divide EOT. And there was one section there. And I remember I actually saved it here as part of my notes for the interview. And it's amazing how you say something very simple using a lot of interesting language, to put it this way. And you said it's not that we oppose books, it's the prevailing culture of mass-produced, shrink-wrapped lessons. And I think that was a, a, 
some sort of reference to shawarmas, I guess, delivered in an um, in-flight magazine style. Worse, in their syllabus, these in-flight courses peddle the idea that the learning of a language runs along a predetermined route with the regularity and efficiency of a Swiss train. I mean, that didn't make it to the book. <laughs> I don't think you guys got to that, but it, that's just an example of... I, I remember reading some of your, your blog posts with, with The Guardian and, and reading stuff from the group, and I was like, wow. Uh, I mean, Luke really... The way he, he, he puts language together is just, is just unique. And I think that is reflected in your background with, with journalism. Specific passage was mine or not, but yeah, possibly unique, but thanks. I mean, I could, that was quite hair-raising at the time, writing that blog. It was often um, sort of sold. It was, uh, you know, the sub-editing around it was, here's the latest controversial blog. And, you know... Guardian readers are pretty bad-tempered at the best of times, and they certainly got <laughs> bad-tempered there. I had to almost be physically restrained from responding <laughs> by my editor. So, yes. Um, so let's just get to the... But, but, I mean, the... Oh, sorry, but, but yeah, yeah, like, go ahead. One, one thing that I, I love doing, uh, you know, I gave a session this morning. It wasn't specifically about Unplugged, but, you know, Unplugged is in there always. Um, I love... I do love finding ways to make ideas about teaching vivid and accessible mm. um if i can if i can do that then uh, that's a good thing well just to add to that there is a video of you on youtube where you're doing a training session at a lake <laughs> oh, i'm probably going to share the link but you know, if you don't if you don't want me to share the link i won't but oh. i remember watching that video and it's it's it's just a unique experience in terms of, I think it was the, one of the activities that you were doing in that specific video was the, the sound activity where you have to listen to, to the sounds in the background and they were able to, to hear the sounds of like uh, of swans or, or, or geese. I can't remember what it was, but I mean, the view in itself was just splendid. Anyway, yeah, it was, it was a particularly beautiful place. It's a great activity. I still love that activity. Uh, so let's just dive right into the, the main ideas in the book very quickly. Yeah. So you could perhaps highlight and explain the main principles and ideas that underpin um, Teach You Unplugged. And as I said earlier, and we were talking about this when you, when you were talking about the inside in between, um, Dogme emerged, no pun intended, out of these 10 key principles, interactivity, um, engagement, dialogic processes, scaffolded conversations, emergence, affordance, voice, empowerment, relevance. And as you said, with published textbooks um, and materials and, and this idea of a critical use of, of these materials. And out of these 10 key principles, you have, as you said, you, you carefully, both of you have carefully chosen these three um, tenets or, or tent poles mm -hmm. or, or, or pillars. Yeah. Um, of dogme. So perhaps we can talk about the three of them very briefly. Sure. I, I mean, that was probably an example of, of, of how we were working on the book and trying to make something that was even more readily accessible to teachers. You know, it's a, a kind of classic rule of three idea, but I think we, I think we got the right three. Um, and I also think we expressed them right. I sometimes check back to the book to make sure that we wrote them the way I remember. Um, and we did. And, and the, the key thing about them is that they're not um, 
wholly prescriptive. It's not either or. And as I started to do much more teacher training once the book was um, published, and especially after it got an award, then I, I had to sort of map the ideas in the book onto all sorts of new contexts that I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't taught for years in Turkey or in Brazil or um, in, in the different places where I found myself training. And whenever people said, well, why do you say you can't use books? We have, you know, we, we're told to by the state to use books or my teaching life is too busy to, to simply give up on published materials. Um, you know, I would go back and check because what we've said is the three pillars are materials light. So use materials, but don't overload. Conversation driven. In other words, make it as interactive as possible. But conversation is not the only way for language to emerge, and it's not the only way to work on language. Right. And then it's focused on the learner and on emergent language. None of those are exclusive um, or, or overly rigid. And it's very important that anyone who's interested in this takes that to heart and sees that there is flexibility there. Because teachers have more or less room for maneuver. They have more or less agency, depending on all sorts of things, you know, broadly summarized by their teaching situation. But it also depends on their, um, their, their kind of training, their level of experience, um, and, and where, where they're at within a given system. And I, and I think they hold good. I, I think that's a great way to teach. <laughs> I, I haven't agree. changed my mind. <laughs> I agree. Uh, one of the things I was going to say, Luke, is uh, in one interview, you mentioned that perhaps you could change the conversation driven to interaction driven. Yeah. And I think there was an interview with Scott Thornbury recently where he admitted that it was a mistake to say conversation driven, especially if a student is somewhat reluctant to engage in classroom conversation. And instead, it should be text driven, meaning both written and and spoken text. To what extent do you do you guys agree with this new uh, this redefinition of the conversation driven? I like interaction driven. I, the the use of the word text there, I think the connotations are so strongly of a written text. I think it's quite a technical definition. Um, I think inter. I'm talking the top of my head. I think interaction driven works. I think it works partly because a lot of the conversation that we have now is text. So I can see why that why Scott would be using the word text in that way. Um, you know, when we talk to each other, we're we're texting very often. We're chatting with our uh, <laughs> kind of chatting with our thumbs, and so the the sort of distinction between spoken conversation and written text is is increasingly has blurred. Um, and now, when people communicate, um, we we kind of pepper what we write with little audios and with images, and we. You know, it's a very playful medium uh, in a way that the Yahoo group in 2000 wasn't. It was very much uh, lots of texts. But now when we communicate on social media, um, you know, it's, it's, it's multi-literacies are in play and there's a lot going on. So, yeah, I, th I think interaction driven is lovely. And I think, um, I think the idea that conversation driven prioritizes speaking over other skills and suggest perhaps that speaking is the only skill that can be spontaneous. Uh, I'd be happy to challenge that, yeah. 
Um, there was one of your presentations before we just get to uh, a macro structure of dogma. I think you were talking about three interesting principles, which is teachers should see each lesson as a social event rather mm -hmm. than a one-off lesson, because that seems to be one of the biggest criticisms of dogma is that you're just basically teaching a one-off lesson that doesn't connect to to anything. So you mentioned that you, you teachers need to perceive lessons as being social events. The second one is um, with dogma, you have to be always creating within the lesson, you're creating reference points. Yeah. And you are also using a lot of evolved learning practices. I, perhaps you could, you could tell us a little more about how these three ideas connect to those other three, the emerging language, so, the so conversation. Summarize the three ideas for me again, Leo, if you don't mind. So, so seeing each lesson as a social event, yeah. okay. creating reference points, and using evolved learning practices like repetition, yeah. um, traditional classroom techniques, I yeah. should say. Um, I think the social event thing is, it, it, it, it's another way of talking about what happens inside and between the people in the room. It's about not, you know, and I say this from a sort of staff room perspective of having been a teacher who was very much, um, you know, a, a very planned PPP uh, trained teacher, um, and then evolving from that and seeing how, how other teachers work as well. Um, the idea of the social event is not that it's a party, but that it's a place where whole people gather right. where the whole person is welcome and brought into the brought into the the, the, the, the structure or, or, or the yeah the, the association um and that you're always looking at the person and not the label whether the label is pre-intermediate or teenager mm. you know um so i think that's about seeing the whole person and focusing on that and, and not and not seeing a lesson as a chance to get something across. It's not about delivering some content or delivering a bit of learning, which you know we know is is fraught with um with, you know, but it, it, it doesn't work the way we imagine it might in that well, process. not everything that is taught is necessarily yeah, exactly. going to be learned, right? Thank right. you. Feel free to summarize me better at times. Um, that's exactly right. And then the reference points. Yeah, I think it's like a feedback loop. I've been working on this recently. Mm. Um, and it's a kind of feedback loop where there is output from interaction. But then there is input based on the previous lessons interaction. And that input might be a quite straightforward teaching point, as you suggest, it might mm -hmm. be, let's let's do a drill with this pronunciation point that, that keeps coming up. Um, it might be, I've got a gap fill ready for you. Um, we can do it now, or you might do it for homework. But I think that idea of a feedback loop is strong because it has the idea of input and output mm. being continuously re recycled. Mm. Um, and that, that's where the reference points come in. I, I think the other point about reference points is they, they can be internal to the lessons that you're teaching or the syllabus perhaps right or they using, can be external yeah. to the syllabus exactly yeah. Yeah. and that's how it's possible to blend an unplugged approach 
right. with teaching a coursework or preparing for an exam. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Salam, man yasaman hastam, ahl iranam. و شما الان شنونده Teacher Talking Time Learn Your English Podcast. Hi, my name is Yasmin. I'm from Iran. And right now you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English Podcast. And I think that dismystify this wrong assumption that when you teach unplugged, you're not teaching grammar, you're not doing pronunciation. And all the students are doing is just communicating or, or speaking yeah. or... Or, or focusing on, on fluency. Not that that's wrong. Fluency should always come first, in my opinion. But um, hmm, interesting. So I, th- I think when, when we chatted a couple of weeks ago, I quoted Frank Smith's yes. tenet that you learn to read by reading. Um, and that was uh, you know, a quote that came out of his work and with the whole language movement. Again, progressive education around 1970. That book, um, I, I forget the name of the book. It's on possibly Unreading by Frank Smith. You learn to read by reading. Krashen often uses that um, mm-hmm. quote in his talks. And my sort of analogy is you learn to speak by speaking. So I would agree with you that without the fluency work, the the input and the teaching points are less effective, if not less. Yeah, the book is called Learn to Read by Reading, Frank Smith, 1976. Oh, okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Um, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll add that to the show notes. I guess the point here is that there is a, there's a heritage to these ideas, and that was one of the things I learned through association with Scott and other people in the early 2000s. Um, there was a whole tradition of progressive underground education in some cases, an unorthodox tradition, but a tradition nonetheless, which, which you know, both informs and, and validates and inspires. Mm-hmm. And I think there is room for language education um, in terms of having, like, I mean, to me, when I think about dogma, it, it really goes back to my own educational system where I felt like I wasn't really the brightest student because it was always grades were prioritized, but not exploration, not questioning. And I, even we, when we had our conversation, I think one of the biggest criticisms I, I, I voiced out to you is that I encourage my children to always listen um, actively and, and ask questions. But my son eventually told me, but, but daddy, 
my teacher doesn't let us ask questions. And I think it goes back to, which I think is the biggest, um, the big idea behind dogamy is to allow or to create space for all these things, to for language to emerge, for the students to have a voice, for, for people to, to gather and really make learning uh, uh, uh, a hum humane exp uh, uh, uh, uh, an experience, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's the that's the best way. Shared yeah. experience, yeah. I think it, I think an experience is is absolutely key. Something that is um, sort of felt and not just executed um, on the part of the teacher and the students. Something that something that is open to the to the the sort of to the effects of the interaction. Um, and not just to the specifics of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, was, and, it, yeah. and it's shared, you know, which, which, is, which is where it links back to dialogic uh, pedagogy, mm -hmm. to um, the ideas of thinkers like Vygotsky and Bakhtin, and to the kind of broader purposes of progressive education, which are, which are far removed from the itemized and standardized and heavily tested syllabus and education policy that we see in practice in so many countries and closer to yeah i mean a, a more a more humane a more whole person whole child driven mm -hmm. view of what is possible for individuals, but is what is possible for individuals together in a classroom through the educational journey and in society as a whole. So we're not just data points which allow people yeah. to measure individuals against each other or schools against schools or countries against fucking countries. You can edit that out. Oh no, it's, it's the good. The approach of where governments say, oh, we need a world-class approach in education so that so that we can be world beating and all, all the associated bullshit. It's so huh. far removed from what children need or what learners need. No, that's wow. I mean, there's so much to unpack, but we we can't really unpack all of it. Um, <laughs> but I remember, and I think we talked about this. There was a quote, and I, I don't remember exactly where I read this, so forgive me for for the lack of a proper citation here. But it was to the extent where we have come, where did we, how did we arrive at the conclusion that the best way to prepare kids for the future is to put them together into a setting where they are organized, as you said, by age, into grades, forced to learn the same thing linearly at the same time and pace, seven hours a day, five days a week for 12 years. I think that goes to show that we're not really creating experiences. We're basically indoctrinating and teaching people to not, we're not teaching them to think. We're teaching them what, how to think. We're teaching them what to think. We're teaching them to, to memorize information that, again, it goes beyond. I think that it doesn't really transform the way we learn. And I feel like now in the 21st century with, with the way, like I tell my kids, I said, if you're having problems, go watch a YouTube video on that subject. You learn more from a lecture where your teacher is basically talking for about half an hour, an hour on this very specific um, topic. 
But uh, which brings us to, yeah, go ahead. Just, just by the by, I think one of the interesting things of about, um, well, probably life and government and politics, but certainly about education policy is that it's often quite well-meaning. The idea behind standardized testing was to make the intake into um, the Ivy League universities more even mm. um, and based more on aptitude and less on privilege and money. So it, it had it had a kind of liberal aim to it. And in the same way, when the No Child Left Behind um, program was instituted in the States and, and taken up with gusto by the Obama administration, everyone talked the right talk about increasing social mobility, um, supporting the least advantaged, the most disadvantaged children. But it's as if in trying to do this, we, we end up digging ourselves deeper and deeper, deeper into delivery modes and standardized testing, all of which can then be justified on the basis that it's there to help the least advantaged children. Um, that, you know, there's conflicting evidence at different points from different places about what, what helps most. But yeah, you, I think space is at a premium. The space for all the things we've been talking about is constantly being squeezed by more and more standardized testing and the uses to which that testing is put and the impact of needing to test so often um, on the syllabus and therefore on coursebooks and therefore on what yeah. we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Because it, we end up as, as educators in, in a position where if we don't deliver the right content within the syllabus in a linear fashion, we're failing our students. We're not helping them um, to, we're not, you know, we're not aiding social mobility yeah. or it's... helping their, their life prospects. So, you know, it, there's an irony in that. And it's, it's a hugely concept, complex process. You know, there's no, there's no easy, you know, there's no easy answer to it, clearly. I'm trying to tell my son that all the things that he's currently learning, he will have to unlearn the moment he leaves school because what the world really rewards is original thinking, innovation, and, and doing things differently um, from the way they are actually taught in school. But just to, to actually get to the final part of our conversation here, Luke, a question that I've received from a lot of people when I, when I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you for the podcast oh, yeah. is the... It's very difficult to describe a dogme lesson. It seems to work at a, at a number of very difficult, complex levels and in a number of ways, as you mentioned, which is, again, hardly surprising given the fact that, as you mentioned, it's, it's very context sensitive. Um, if you're teaching in Brazil, if you're teaching in Turkey, if you're teaching in Japan, if you're teaching in Canada. So what does a teaching unplugged lesson look like in the classroom, in your opinion? Well, it may not look like the lesson plan, but it will look like the lesson write-up. And that's one way to show what it looks like, is to write it up afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, I don't think the answer uh, anyone asking that question is looking for, but it's part of it. It's that the emphasis is not on planning in minute detail what the lesson is going to look like 
and then teaching to that plan. It's setting up a framework with some planned input and allowing space for other outputs whilst ensuring that you do address the things you've set out to do. Um, and that there's then an emphasis and an, uh, um, you know, uh, um, the onus is then on the teacher to spend a bit more time after the class to record what the outputs were, which will help them plan their next input. Right, right now, um, I know we haven't got to that bit, but in setting up the context as a new project, um, we're looking at models. We're asking ourselves, what is the kind of teaching that we do? It's not just me, it's, it's me and my wife, Leia, who's currently on sabbatical, but is helping me to plan this out. Um, and it's very much a joint project. And so we have two different teaching histories coming together. Mm. So it's a kind of micro version of what happens in a cell phone, if you like. And so, you know, I've kind of gone back to, to writing things out, to drawing diagrams and, and asking myself, what, what are we giving our students here? Um, how can we make it as effective as possible? So I think it's very important to emphasize that all this kind of emphasis, all, all, all the emphasis on methodology, um, all, all the effort put into making a fresh approach is based on the idea that we want to help the learner. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the same goal and, and we care about it as much as the next teacher. It's not an easy route out. If anything, it's a bit less easy. Um, and so one of my frameworks at present is you know how TV shows often these days have a cold open mm -hmm. where you'll see part of the drama before you get to the titles. Right. Um, previously, previously on Californication yeah. and they, yeah. Or, or, or, or they'll go straight, like on Saturday Night Live, they go straight into a sketch. Right. And then you get to the kind of who's hosting it in the credits. So instead of a cold open, I, I call the start of the lesson a free open where you always start with pre-conversation. Um, and you might right. be referring back to something that was touched on in the last lesson. And there are obvious touch points like the weekend that's just been or the weekend that's coming up or did an interview or something go well. But you're basically allowing the conversation to flourish. And then what we're working to right now is something I'm calling the planned heart. Um, which is where you decide in advance what stimulus you might use to generate more around a particular language point or a set of language points, or what input you need to give the student. Um, so the, the, the free open, if you like, generates a lot of language, some of which will mirror or echo what's already been covered in the what's come up rather in the last lesson. Um, but you do get to something that's planned and how that plays out impacts on what you might do towards the end of the lesson. Mm. So the, the, it's not a full description, but what I, what I wind up doing is, is drawing a framework. It starts with something empty, but then I say, what's the stimulus? What's the task? What's the input? And then after that, there's still space depending on how much it generated, whether it might need an additional activity of some sort. Right. Uh. So 
um, you know, I, I hope at some point to write more on this. And I learned so much from teacher training uh, over the last 10 years since the book came out. But I, um, I do think there's material for another book, which will hopefully answer some of these questions and make it and make it feel more clearly like an achievable, a sustainable um, uh, approach. I think you're you're hitting the right adjective there: sustainable, organic, um, yeah. bottom up. Which you mentioned teacher training, and that that was the last question that I wanted to ask. Is to me, uh, this is just a personal thing. Training implies a very prescriptive, very top-down model, yeah. um, as opposed to teacher education. Um, and you you mentioned this in one of the chapters in the book with Scott in Teaching Unplugged, where um, it's really important that the trainer in a teacher training a course or a teacher education course needs to really practice what they preach and set an example. If you're talking about creating space, then there should be no handouts, no PowerPoints. And um, I think what I'm really interested in, and I think the audience would be very interested to, to hear more about is, is it possible to deliver, because you're, now you're working with um, IH Belfast, is it possible to deliver both pre-service and in-service courses following a, an unplugged approach? Well, we're working on, on some sessions this week, so it's, it's not quite as much as a pre-service or in-service course uh, at this point. But um, uh, yes, I think it is, because I think you're still dealing with many of the same factors that impact on one's decision to choose any kind of methodology. Um, and I think there are frameworks and I like the idea of producing more visual frameworks that will help people um, that, that can, can show, I guess, the balance between interaction and teaching moments, if you like. Um, I used to call it play, pause, play. But mm. what happens in the play? What happens in the pause? I think also, I was thinking as you were asking the question that the the words we use for education, I think we need to be careful about the words we use. Um, you know, I don't like thinking of students as stakeholders, for example. I don't like talking about the education industry, let alone the education business, because the, the impact on how we position ourselves within it. Right. Um, one thing that happens to me as a trainer or as, or as a speaker, if I'm delivering a, a short course or a single workshop, for example, that is certainly felt by teachers, and I'm feeling it as a teacher now, is you want to give value. You want to be really good. <laughs> you want to help your student, and you want them to feel that they're being helped. You, you want to get good feedback. All of these are, are perfectly natural. And one uh, that leads very often to over-planning. It, it leads to a kind of anxiety about what, what I'm going to what am I delivering? Um, am I going to be seen as valid? Um, and so, you know, the, the great irony is, as I've done many times, is finding that I've planned and put far too much into a talk, which is all about using fewer materials. <laughs> um, it's such a natural instinct to want to, to kind of serve right. the student, to fulfill our role as a teacher or a trainer. And 
to and and and to lose the space you know it's a real it's a real skill that you need to learn with experience and i've had to learn it now as a a trainer as i've gained more experience mm. to leave space i think you mentioned and i i i think it's from the book that and i and i subscribe to the same um belief that teacher development is very much like learner development it works best when it's bottom up when it's organic when it's when it's got space as you mentioned for for for trainees to experiment to question to to probe to to ask for reasons for evidence to look at what makes you say that and i think this aspect of of this this dialogical aspect of of teacher education is something that is missing in a lot of teacher training courses and i'm very critical of those courses because i have been i have become a, i was a product of these courses and i didn't do very well in those specific courses because i wanted to question i wanted to understand why we do things the way we do and of course as you said trying to really create a community of practice where everyone has equal voice, which goes back to one of those principles, which is this idea of empowerment. It's like, I'm not better than you, you're not better than me, but together we can, we can put something together and it, might, it could be beautiful, who knows? Yeah, you know, I, I agree. <clears throat> I mean, I think, I mean, I thought this as, as we were talking about education as a whole, and I was saying how it's ironic that as educators, we kind of find ourselves under pressure to teach in ways that we might not deeply believe in so that we don't let our students down. Um, we want them to pass the exams. We want them to succeed, even if we don't necessarily believe in the wider education or even the wider economic scenario that, that they're progressing in. Um, and within that as teachers, we we need to find whatever space is there, um, whatever breathing space there is for ourselves and for the teachers. And I think, uh, sorry, the, for ourselves and the students. And I think as trainers, you know, I know that there are trainers who who follow um, a, a sort of certificated course quite closely, but I know there are many who essentially subvert it. Yeah. Um, and I think we have to value that as a community. And we have to recognize that it happens and we have to sort of champion subversion within systems because one way or another we we are always going to be working in one system uh, yeah, there's always going to be a system that we're, yeah. we're working within um and which we need on some level to satisfy so i think i think there is a, there is room i think teachers find it all the time without wanting to sound trite um and I think many trainers also look for that space and essentially subvert the, the, the, the course sometimes. Right. Well, Luke, we're coming to the end of this podcast interview. I have three questions from, uh, from people that emailed me and sent me messages. I think the first one is an interesting one. What are some recommendations that you would give to someone who wants to teach Unplugged, who wants to move away from a prescriptive syllabus using textbooks rely over planning what are some recommendations you would you would give to someone like that do some planning <laughs> don't abandon that um start by having some in in planning in approaching a lesson 
have some things ready. It's fantastic if a lesson, if the free open part of a lesson just flourishes and blooms and all kinds of emergent language comes out and you kind of never get to the bit that you meant to teach. That can be wonderful. Um, and it can happen more often than we might expect. And we can learn how to promote it, but always be ready with something. Don't go in naked. So do some planning, not no planning. And think of, sort of learn, in a sense, learn the traditional techniques so that you can adopt and adapt them. Um, if, if you're fluent in the language of course books and the kind of skills activities that they have, then you can adopt them and use them in a more spontaneous way. There's nothing wrong with using a drill for pronunciation. There's nothing wrong with using a, a gap fill to test a language point. There's nothing wrong with doing a quite repetitive language activity to reinforce understanding and successful use of a language point. It, it's about being able to use those more responsibly right. um, and more and sort of closer to the point of need, if you like, to where the learner needs to know that thing. Uh, I mean, there's, all, there's a lot more things I could say there. Um, but I, I think don't, don't think that it's all or nothing. Mm. It, it's not black or white. You're not trying to be a pure version of anything. Um, you're trying to, I think the phrase we keep coming back to is so useful. We're trying to create space in the classroom where things can happen and for students to produce more of their own language, whether it's through conversation or, or you know, many kinds of activity, or they might be uh, writing as well. Right. Second question. What advice would you have given to your 20-year-old self, your younger teacher self? <laughs> Wow, I wasn't a teacher yet when I was 20. Um, keep asking difficult questions. It's a good one. <laughs> It'll lead you to interesting places. Absolutely. I'm a strong proponent of asking better <laughs> questions. I find that the, the quality of your questions will definitely determine the quality of your life. And the final question, this is a, an interesting one that I like to ask people. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere, with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, of course, getting a message out to millions or billions of people on the planet, what would it say and why? Well, I like the old hippie phrase, be here now. What does that represent to you? It represents being attentive to our immediate surroundings, our immediate context, the people we're currently with. Um, I think it implies gratitude um for what we have and i think it implies a degree of freedom from a consumerist model which always tells us that we'd be better off somewhere else or as somebody else or with uh with different possessions or whatever i think i think be here now it stems back to the hippie movement. I think it was Ram Das who died recently, pardon me, um, who, who was famous for using it in a book 
the name of which escapes me. It's a hippie classic, but I haven't read the whole book. <laughs> we'll, we'll... I, think, I just think it's, I, I love the vibe in that, in that phrase, be here now. It's, it's about, you know, a lot of things that we associate now with mindfulness, I guess, um, mm. of stillness and appreciation and, you know, a sort of being, not being satisfied with what we have. I don't, I don't mean give up on trying to change things, but just, yeah, being, coming from a point of being settled. The book is called Be Here Now by Ram Das. There you go. That's as far as I got, the title page. Yes. Describes one man's transformation upon his acceptance of the principles of yoga and gives a modern restatement of the importance of the spiritual side of human nature. Okay. Well, that's not a bad place to, to end up, is it? Uh, no, not at all. Luke, um, I wanted to thank you for, for your time. Um, we're going to be adding all the information about the context, which is your, okay. your, your new project. We have the Instagram page. We're going to add that to the show notes. Any okay. final words, anything you want to send out there apart from the billboard? Apart from the billboard, um, well, I, I, I guess I've had a few years when I was doing less in ELT for various reasons. And I'm really excited to be back. Um, yeah, you took a break, right? Yeah, I took a I, I took a step back. It wasn't a full break. Okay. Um, I was still doing, um, always kind of writing and noting, and I also did some conferences. But I took a step back from doing lots and lots of conferences, for example. But now I'm excited to be back. You know, it, it's it's good to be teaching and training again, and uh, you know, there are big possibilities. been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.